2: Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities.
0: I don't know if we mentioned this before, maybe we did, but we're going to be in the
2: new Kristen
0: Bell movie okay it sounds a lot cooler than it really is yeah we
1: are not in the movie at all our
0: voices are
1: our voices are that's yeah, different
0: <laughs> yeah yeah Kristen Bell Vince Vaughn um, it's a movie that's coming out very soon it's called Queen Pins. it's about the uh, coupon scandal and uh, it's it's really it's hilarious We were given the opportunity to uh, to do a little voice work on it where voices on a like an answering machine or voicemail yeah. Complaining about uh, coupons, and um, I'm also the voice of an executive on the phone chewing a, a guy out because of coupons. That's right. Just got off the phone with the directors and writers, Aaron Godette and Gita Palopoli, and uh, we get to watch a special private screening of this movie uh, on the interwebbles this weekend, and I'm very excited.
1: Yeah, I'm super jazzed. Um, I guess the final cut has to be to the. Uh, movie house i don't know the, the words
0: the studio
1: um in like two weeks so this is like their their last cut before it goes, it goes And yeah. so i'm super jazzed to see it and um i know that you and i are in it collectively for about 20 seconds about 20
0: seconds <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> um, but if you get a chance to see it, go watch it, and uh, and maybe if you pay really close attention, you'll hear our voices.
1: Yeah, there. Uh, by the way, it's. Aaron and Gita are amazing filmmakers. Anyway, I'm just going to real quick uh, say, and we love Kristen Bell, oh. uh, but there's all kinds of incredible actors in this film. Leslie Jones, as you said, Vince Vaughn, uh, Joel McHale's in it, Mark Evan Jackson, who I love from The Good Place. A lot
0: of The Good Place cast is in it.
1: Yeah, Stephen Root's in it. Oh, I man. think you have my stapler.
0: Mm-hmm. It's going to so, be great. I'm super jazzed. Queen Pins um, yeah. goes to the studio in a couple of weeks. I think they're shooting for a summer release we'll keep you posted on that
1: you go first correct no you do i go first yeah, go ahead yeah that's i it. was gonna do that anyway mm, i knew. It's
0: <laughs> just
1: gonna be like uh here i go hmm. stravinsky called him the best british composer of the 20th century
0: that's pretty high praise
1: uh for real uh he was also a novelist and a painter his name was gerald hugh tirewit wilson also known as the Fourteenth Baron Burners, I might call him Burner, and I might call him Gerald. I might call him Gerald Burner. I don't. I How about I, Burn Man. Burn Man. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Okay, but that might get us confused with the very popular uh, Burning Guy Festival oh, yeah. that you talked about the other day. <laughs> um, so anyway, okay, Gerald was of money. And uh, status, he was out and about with a lot of aristocrats and such, but he created a name for himself as well. Though he was described as shy, Gerald Bernards is a man who tends to show up in the memoirs of aristocrats of the time. He appears in many books and biographies of the period, notably portrayed as Lord Merlin in Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love. Really? Really? In 2016, he was played by Christopher Godwin in Episode 3 of the BBC Radio 4 drama, What England Owes. So he was one of those guys that was just part of the noble elite and was around and in society and about society. Um, so he was kind of just everywhere. Kind and, of like
0: a character actor. Oh, it's that guy again.
1: Except he wasn't an actor.
0: And everybody knew who he was.
1: Right. Unlike character actors. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was well known for his piano works. Uh, He also composed music for ballets, including uh, The Triumph of Neptune which was a big deal. And Berners also wrote songs and film scores, most notably for the 1947 film Nicholas Nickleby. According to Joseph Epstein, uh, in an article in The New Criterion, Berners' next posting was at Rome. So he was uh, working for the government in and about various cities. And when he got to Rome, he met and befriended a guy named Ronald Furbank. And Furbank described him and knowing him as uh, he was terminally shy, but the flashes of brilliance that animated his conversation and made his company so delightful are impossible to reconstruct. He later wrote, One might as well attempt to record the hovering of a hummingbird (laughs) or portray the opalescence of a soap bubble. There was an intriguing irreverence, a delightful, fantastic silliness in all he said and did.
0: This sounds like my kind of guy. I
1: know. So Gerald grew up as an only child in a rather stuffy late Victorian opulence. He was brought up by his grandmother, who was very religious, very self-righteous, and a mother who had... As described by him, very little intellect, but a lot of prejudices. Mm. Um, Dad seemed pretty disinterested in the whole family. Not really into it. Just couldn't even be bothered to beat his kid at the end of the day. (laughs) In 1918, (laughs) 1918, Burners became the 14th Baron Burners after inheriting the title property and money from an uncle the inheritance included the Farringdon House. And a stay at the Farringdon House, according to the Telegraph, offered plenty of quirky touches. There were strange notices all around the house. Um, So it feels very us-style in that there are notes all over the place, including inside wardrobes and cabinets where you wouldn't expect necessarily to find something. Like, you know how... um, when you open our fridge, in the door there's a a pin of a grilled cheese sandwich, mm-hmm. and uh, and it, he says that we're best friends forever. Right. But and that's you know, it, it's important for you to well be welcomed into the refrigerator <laughs> by a grill. So, um, inside one of the wardrobes, there was a note that said, "Managing done here."
0: What kind of managing? Does one do in the wardrobe? (laughs) It's not something you want to share with your neighbors, I'm sure.
1: Uh, Signs also included one that said, this sign is not in Arabic. And it was written in Arabic. (laughs) Uh, Another (laughs) sign (laughs) said, if you're looking for a sign, here it is. Okay. So there
0: you go. It happened again. Um, It's the British humor. I love you know, it. It's very, this is very Python-esque.
1: Absolutely. And um, keep in mind that this is also the period, when we talked about this with uh, some other pranksters of this time, uh, where people were kind of getting over this whole aristocracy thing. And mm-hmm. so they kind mm-hmm. of wanted to mock even their own positions. They were just like... <laughs> This is all silly, and this this isn't to be taken as seriously as you're all taking this. Burner's dogs uh, were known to wear pearl necklaces. They were whippets. And uh, if one of the necklaces would fall off and a guest pointed it out, Gerald would laugh it off and say, Oh, I guess we must go get another one from the safe.
0: Wow. He
1: was definitely someone who... Um, had the attention of socialites of the time and also really interesting artistic people. So uh, those in the 20s and 30s who were interesting wanted to be with other interesting people. I mean, it made sense. And so his typical weekend guest list at the home included Aldous Huxley, H.G. Wells, Salvador Dali, it said, in fact, that Berners was the one who suggested the diving suit as part of Salvador Dali's aesthetic for an upcoming exhibit.
0: Wow. Dinner with Aldous Huxley and Salvador Dali.
1: And Gertrude Stein and Edith Sitwell and Nancy Mitford, the the novelist, she once said that second best was never tolerated at Farringdon House, Mm. either in comfort, conversation or in manners. So it was cool to be eccentric, but not rude.
0: Yeah, you can be eccentric up to the point of rudeness and then (laughs) out you go.
1: Unless it's funny enough and then you can be rude.
0: That's kind of our rule. Right. In this house. Comedy Comedy trumps trumps all. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, As I mentioned, uh, Stravinsky was a big fan and often hung out at the house as well. Gerald once invited Penelope Betjeman to the home, and he wanted to paint her and her Arab stallion. So uh, he invited them both into the drawing room for afternoon <laughs> tea so he could paint them. Uh, because he didn't want to paint outside. No, so bring so your horse in bring here. bring that horse inside. Sure. Right. Um, of course, that wasn't that weird because... Gerald was known to have a pet giraffe that hung around the house sometimes. Of course he did. So um, you'd see him around the property occasionally making his way inside.
0: What forward-thinking British socialite would not have a giraffe?
1: Guests, obviously, were treated with all kinds of delights. I mean, they had money and they wanted to, to share interesting, fun things. And if they had a fresh bowl of peaches and someone said... Gerald, uh these are delicious peaches," he might reply with, "Yes, they're ham-fed."
0: <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> This sounds like the kind of guy who would uh, have like a mummy unwrapping.
1: That does sound exactly right, yes. Or
0: some sort of a dissection party. Right. You know, (laughs) who's died recently and where can we find him?
1: Um, You might also notice while you're visiting the home, his brightly colored pigeons. Uh, He um, decided that pigeons weren't pretty enough, so he wanted them to be pink. And so he had pastel dyed pigeons in and about the house.
0: How do the pigeons feel about that, Katrina Walls?
1: Not sure, huh. not sure. Okay. Now, I know I had a poodle once that I dyed with Kool-Aid and he was just fine. So, you know, <laughs> it depends on how it was done, I sure, guess. Sure.
0: If you dye your poodle with love, that's fine.
1: Burners also had this idea to build a folly on the top of a hill um, He because he believed that hill needed a tower. <laughs> It was constructed as a birthday present in 1935 for his partner, Robert Herbert Percy, who was known as the eccentric mad boy of noble lineage in and about the same time. Uh, As a quick sideline, Herbert Percy ran an undertaker's business, uh, not because he needed money, but, you know, for funsies. Right. Um,
0: Dissection parties. He
1: also really loved their yearly conferences. So,
0: <laughs> so so, he became one so he could go to the yearly conference. Pretty
1: much. That's, that's my understanding. That is
0: fabulous. Um,
1: at the entrance of this huge tower that was built uh, in the countryside, uh, much to the dismay of the town folk, by the way, uh, it bore a stern warning. Members of the public committing suicide from this tower do so at their own risk.
0: <laughs> this is so Python. What's, is John Cleese related to this guy somehow? <laughs>
1: Now, as I said, he was of that time where people were um, kind of starting to turn up their nose at the idea of nobility and the silliness of it all. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was a little bit of a dingus from time to time. Uh, Occasionally, he would drive around his estate wearing a pig's head mask to frighten the locals. (laughs) Um, He also uh, knew of a woman, Sybil Colfax, who was known as a social climber. You know, one of those people who was always trying to get in with the crowd. Right. You know, the in crowd. Mm -hmm. Um, So he sent her a invitation That said, I wonder if by any chance you'd be free to dine tomorrow night. It's only a tiny party for Winston and GBS. There will be no one else there except for Toscanini and myself. So he invited her to join him at his home for a party where he would be hosting Winston Churchill, Mm -hmm. George Bernard Shaw, Mm -hmm. and famous composer Toscanini. He made sure, though, to make sure that the address and her name on the envelope were so illegibly written that the envelope would inevitably arrive after the date of the party.
0: (laughs) I love this guy. (laughs) You know, if I had untold riches (laughs) and plenty of time on my hands... This is how I would spend it, both my money and my time.
1: He had a Rolls Royce, as you do when mm-hmm. you're in that kind of situation, uh, but he had it fitted out. Uh, he had his ride pimped, if you will, really? with a clavichord keyboard, which <laughs> could be stored beneath the front seat. So if he got an idea mid-toodle, uh, he could just pull out the underside of the seat, and there is a keyboard that he could use wow. to... Yeah.
0: Wow. He was forward thinking.
1: He certainly was. Now, keep in mind, he, like so many uh, of these incredibly interesting, eccentric, borderline genius kind of guys, also dealt with some mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Now, he was... He dealt with bouts of depression, and uh, he had a real problem with the idea of there being a world war. Like, he just didn't dig it. And it felt very um, much like it was the concept of it just really interfered with his general happiness. Sure. And... Not long after the production of his last ballet, he ended up losing his eyesight. He was also in a long term relationship with Robert Herbert Percy, who Herbert Percy, Robert Herbert Percy who was much younger than him and when he lived with burners at one point he took a wife and had a baby with that wife and they all lived in the house together and my dad is
0: eccentric i can't
1: imagine that that did a lot for his mental health no it's got to be really hard to see the person that you love uh having a family with someone else in your home sure yeah Though the details of that arrangement, I don't entirely know, uh, nor do I need to. I'm just saying probably that didn't that didn't always help.
0: No, Mm. I can't imagine it would.
1: So Berners died in 1950 at the age of 66 at the Farringdon House. He left his estate to Robert Herber Percy, who lived there until his own death in 1987 And Burners insisted on writing his own epitaph, which appears on his gravestone. Here lies Lord Burners, one of the great learners. His great love of learning may earn him a burning, but praise the Lord, he seldom was bored.
0: (laughs) I would love to have known this guy. I know. what. What a charming fellow. <laughs> and the dinner parties. Oh, my God. Right? The, the names that, that he would bring to the table. I would, what I would give to have a hot pocket with Salvador Dali.
1: I know. My God. <laughs> so, super interesting. Also, one of those kind of, like, long tortured souls, but... Mm. um, what a uh, what a fantastic life story he has and so many so many sources that i found had little bits and pieces of stories that i couldn't find verified in other articles so mm-hmm. i didn't feel comfortable sharing them but i mean it's been said that Burners is the one who ordered Salvador Dali's diving suit, and when the person taking the order said, uh, "How did he, how deep does he want to go?" he responded with, "To the depths of his subconscious," <laughs>
2: you know. Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: but um, sure. I couldn't find that verified anywhere. So there's a lot of uh, scuttlebutt as well. But uh, That's a overall, quote.
0: Beautiful quote. Pretty though. amazing. So is the diving suit part of the exhibit that we saw at the Salvador Dali Museum? That- Yes, that's the one. Yeah, he's sitting in uh, inside of a a Rolls Royce. A Rolls Royce filled with water.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Yeah, I did not realize. Yeah. Wow, well, that was one of our
2: first dates.
1: It really was. Yep. Yeah. We, Salvador. We Dollar. don't fuck around.
2: No. <laughs> and now that thing in the middle.
0: Back in 2015, a guy named Christian Fom entered a poker tournament in Las Vegas. Now he accidentally signed up for the wrong competition. So, instead of playing a normal game, he was playing against the 200 greatest poker players in the world. He was also playing a version of the game that he wasn't used to, called No Limit Deuce to Seven Draw Lowball Texas Hold'em. He had no idea what the rules were or even how many cards he was supposed to have. Nevertheless, he won the entire game and walked away with eighty thousand dollars.
2: Listen, you've you've gotta get me out of here. I'm being held against my will. Someone call the podcast police now because Oh hi cat hey hey Jethro, now just just sitting here in the booth doing liners for the show not talking to anyone else, just you know, just you guys, same Same as always, this is The Box of Oddities. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
1: We got a message from Michelle that said, I'm a bit behind in episodes, trying to get caught up, so I'm listening while I'm working. I was listening to episode 235 called Eating Your Shoes, and out of the blue, Alexa Add Butt Plugs to My Shopping List was said. (laughs) I do not use Alexa. It just sits next to my computer. But it turned on. It created a list, and it said buttplugs has been added to your shopping list you should have seen me scrambling to shut her up (laughs) needless to say when i told my husband what happened he about fell out of his chair laughing (laughs) and wanted to know when we can expect them
0: yes there you go um Ah, ah! in fact we were contacted uh i don't know a week or so ago by the agency that uh, does our ad sales Mm. wanting to know if we would be interested in Amazon Echo as a sponsor. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, and I told him that story. Was that a bad idea?
1: No, I think it's perfect.
0: So we haven't heard back, so. (laughs) It's fine. I don't know if it's a great selling point or not. (laughs) Anyway, here's my question. Did you know that in the 1800s in Baltimore, Baltimore was a hotbed for grave robbing?
1: uh, Not specifically, I guess. (laughs) I didn't know that that was a. It's true. I mean, I. I knew that that time period was a rough go for those who'd been buried.
0: Specifically, Baltimore. No, I didn't. It was like the grave robbing capital. It's true. And did you know that Baltimore also formed the nation's first common rail carrier in 1828, and that those two things are connected? In 1828, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad completely changed the way (laughs) business was done in the United States. The B&O Railroad, like on Monopoly, Baltimore and Ohio.
1: Oh, is that what B&O stands for? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I'm really, I'm usually pretty busy um, whooping ass uh, in um, when I'm playing Monopoly. Yeah, sure. So I, I forget <clears throat> to pay attention to what B&O stands for because, you know, tiger blood. In
0: uh, 1828, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad changed the way business was done in the U.S. Um, once it became the very first common carrier, obviously... It linked the nation together in many ways. And this caused a lot of changes throughout the country, but one that nobody ever expected was that it would be responsible for a huge increase in raiding Baltimore cemeteries.
1: Oh, because they had a larger sales opportunity, yeah? Yeah.
0: Because they could ship them? Baltimore became a hub of grave robbing initially because there was about a half a dozen medical schools right in the city of Baltimore. Mm. And uh, this was a time when a lot of medical experimentation was going on. They uh, needed
1: those bodies.
0: Anatomy, dissection, all of that. Uh, a lot of scientific discovery, and most of it was due to dead bodies being dissected and explored. Now you add the fact. That Baltimore is located in a temperate zone, which, uh, which means that graves could be robbed year-round.
1: Sure, which is a real advantage that they have over us. I mean, in places like Maine, we have a very small window for grave robbing.
0: That's true. Really, it's a seasonal event here.
1: Mm-hmm. Come for the grave robbing and stay for the foliage.
0: That's on our license plates. Yeah. In case you didn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it starts out as kind of a local business, but then the railroad comes in, and they think, "Hey, cool! You know, we can uh, we can ship bodies on the train in the winter time." And they had a very specific process in robbing graves. They kind of had it down to a science. The grave robbers would begin by shoveling at the head of a freshly buried coffin. They would dig about a hole, a hole about two and a half feet square, all the way down to the top of the of the coffin. Then they would smash the lid of the coffin, they would lower down a hook on a rope and connect it around the corpse's neck and armpit area mm-hmm. and then pull the body out of the uh, out of the grave that way. This was a very lucrative practice.
1: Kind of like sliding a Charleston chew out of the end of the package. In
0: fact it Just- was called the Charleston chew method. Yeah. Most people don't know that yeah. because it's not true. Yeah that
1: new gets different though. That's different. <laughs>
0: So up until this point, medical schools had to rely on unclaimed corpses, whether it uh, came from a poorhouse or a prison or the occasional executed criminal. It's the classic case of supply and demand. And believe it or not, grave robbing was considered a misdemeanor. They didn't think it was a serious crime. Well, It was seldom prosecuted. Politicians, in fact, fought to protect grave robbing. Because they said it was in the name of uh, common good. Oh. Because of science and, you know.
1: Okay, that's not the way to go about it, though.
0: No. Law enforcement sometimes would not even respond to calls oh, no. of grave robbing. And when they did. They rarely prosecuted it. So
1: what you have to do is you have to encourage the families to donate the bodies, not allow the families to bury them and then encourage criminals to (laughs) take on criminal activities. Yeah,
0: it would seem to make sense to pursue it in that order. Good Lord. There was even one case in court where an attorney argued that because the previous occupant of the body had vacated the body, its ownership was in doubt. (laughs) So there was no need to prosecute.
1: That feels so much like the way I argue. (laughs) Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, was it really your salad? I mean, you had left the home. So, I mean, the salad, in my opinion, had been abandoned. Yes,
0: it's salad abandonment is what I'm charging you with. (laughs) The lawyer's argument was that the only people who had a case against the grave robber was the cemetery, and that unless the cemetery sued, nothing could be done. Um, Of course, cemeteries never sued because most of them were in cahoots with the grave robbers to to begin with. Potter's Fields, for the poor and forgotten, were the preferred source of fresh cadavers in in the day. Uh, Places like Bayview Asylum, which is now a satellite medical campus of Johns Hopkins University. There, in a section next to one of the main buildings, they would uh, pile up wooden pine boxes, and when they had bodies in them, they would lay them in open pits, and they would just toss in a thin layer of earth to cover up a section. So pickings were pretty easy for the resurrectionists. They raided uh, Bayview both day and night. Uh, they didn't just do it at night. In fact, there was a grave robbing. It took place in the middle of the day, in the middle of the asylum's board meeting. They were sitting there, and they could see people outside digging bodies up, and nobody did anything.
1: If you whistle, they can't see you.
0: Still, to this day, old-timers who lived near Hopkins Medical Center at the time Uh, Remember having been warned as kids to come back home before the streetlights come on or else, quote, a Johns Hopkins doctor man will snatch you up and cut you up. So the grave robbers, or the resurrectionists, if you prefer, started robbing graves to supply the half dozen medical schools in the immediate area. Mm -hmm. But then some more enterprising, entrepreneurial minded grave robbers decided that since Baltimore now was on the railway hub, that they could uh, ship the bodies elsewhere. Now, obviously, you can't ship a corpse in hot weather in those days on a train so in the winter time they would dig up corpses because they could still the ground wasn't frozen and they'd ship them to other medical schools in other parts of the country they shipped them as far as far west as st louis and as far south as atlanta they even took advanced orders
1: oh that's dangerous
0: <laughs> they took advanced orders for quote winter deliveries, and according to the Baltimore Sun, much as a merchant would contract for pork and other goods. Oh, lordy. This was especially profitable when the ground was frozen in the north. So it was a combination of things. The fact that the ground in the winter in Baltimore never froze solid, the fact that the railway system began and ended in Baltimore at the time, it gave the entrepreneurial-minded grave robber the perfect opportunity to expand his business. Mm -hmm. So these uh, enterprising young grave diggers would start shipping fresh cadavers to those schools on train cars in the wintertime. That, of course, kept the cadavers fresh longer. The next step for them was to figure out a way to ship bodies year-round. How could they do that? Summers in Baltimore can get pretty hot. The idea was that they would take the bodies, they would fold them up, they would put them in barrels, and then ship them on the train, but they obviously didn't want the bodies to putrefy so they would fill the barrels up with alcohol. That served two purposes. One, the alcohol would help mask any smells, and two, it would help preserve the corpse for a longer period of time. This went on for years. It became a very lucrative business. Being a grave robber from Baltimore at the time meant you were usually pretty wealthy. And these guys were all about expanding business. Now, think about how they took advantage of the opportunity here. First, supply and demand. Six medical schools in Baltimore demanded fresh cadavers, so they provided fresh cadavers. There were plenty of Popper's fields and cemeteries to raid. Next, the railroad became available. And since the ground never completely froze in the winter in Baltimore, they were able to ship cadavers by rail around the country. Then, to maximize profit, they started shipping cadavers year-round, even in the hot summer months, by folding up the bodies into a barrel and filling the barrels with alcohol. But still, this wasn't maximizing the profit enough for these guys. Once the body was delivered, the doctors would remove the body from the barrel, the barrels would then be emptied and thrown away, at least at first. Eventually, the resurrectionists thought, geez, this is expensive and wasteful. So what they would do is require that the uh, barrels be shipped back to them. They would pour the alcohol out of the barrels and reuse the barrels. But when they poured the alcohol out, they would pour it into bottles and sell it at a discount to unwary liquor consumers.
1: Oh, no.
0: Once again, maximizing profit. Oh. The code word, they had a code word for it. When you sold bottles of liquor that came from a body barrel, it was called giving the person a stiff drink. No. That's where that phrase came from. Not true. It is also where the term rot-gut whiskey comes from.
1: That's not true.
0: This went on most of the 18th century from the time trains started in 1828 until 1900, That was several years after the State Anatomy Board was created to allocate unclaimed corpses, and that's what ended body trafficking. The board was headed by Hopkins anatomist Franklin Mall. The bodies that could not be used immediately were kept in cold storage at Hopkins. Any school of good reputation was entitled to them, but no word on whether or not they also received a bottle of rot-gut whiskey with their order. Rot-gut right whiskey. That is terrible.
1: Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, is terrible. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, like, the some of the really high-end boozes that you come home with, <laughs> uh, you know, oh, this one has notes of burning lumber. <laughs> mm. Oh, this smells like a trash fire.
2: Uh-huh. yeah.
1: It's, yeah. Oh, oh, that's a gentle hint on the back of my tongue of
0: festering corpse. <laughs> yeah, you're not a big fan of scotches or bourbons. I get it. I understand. <laughs> it's an acquired taste. But I don't think I could uh, acquire a taste for rot gut. No. The real stuff. No. no.
1: Now, I wouldn't believe you about the rotgut thing, um, except for... If I always assumed that it had to do with what it does to your gut when you drink it. Sure. Um, So that would be called gut rot whiskey. Mm -hmm. So uh, now that you're saying this, it makes total sense.
0: So a subtle difference. Right. Yeah. I got uh, most of this from Smithsonian Magazine and Ripley's Believe It or Not. There you have it.
1: Well, that's upsetting.
0: How trains led to an increase in body trafficking. Which led to an increase in rot gut whiskey.
1: Mm. Well, you know, supply and demand. Yep. It's yep. a it's a fact of life. It is. Speaking of which, supply and demand. See, I'm going to segue oh, right segue-ged. into okay. Yeah. Merch. <laughs> we have a new design available in our merch store, mm-hmm. and it uh, it was highly requested, so I I finally did it. And I have to say, it's, uh, it's become a hit.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's one of our fastest selling t-shirts, Yeah, t-shirt designs.
1: Um, and somebody said today that it gives them real Saved by the Bell vibes, yeah. which is exactly what I was going for. Yeah,
0: it looks like a Saved by the Bell kind of uh, design. Mm-hmm. And it just simply says, eat a bag of dicks.
1: And then it has our, our the box of oddities on mm-hmm. it. Um, I I want you to know that I went to the trouble of I googled <laughs> like 1980s windbreakers and I saved those photos. And then all of the colors that I used within this design were pulled directly from it's those windbreakers. Very
0: very uh, 80s influenced design.
1: I love it. I'm really happy about it. You can, um, you
0: can check out all of our merch. <laughs> <laughs> at theboxofoddities dot com, please do, and that's also the place that you can support us on Patreon and get the episodes a day early and get them ad free. Mm. And we do appreciate the support as we continue to uh, lay the groundwork for our fall tour. We uh, we appreciate the support because that's gonna it's gonna help us pull this off. It's it's not cheap to do.
1: No, and now we have this added expense of all the hand sanitizer uh. we're gonna have to bring on the road.
0: Anyway, thanks for hanging out with us. We look forward to hanging out with you again soon.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com on Facebook at facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2021, all rights reserved.
1: I don't know what's wrong with me. <clears throat> My lips are chapped, I'm uncomfortable. I would like an orange.